This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Hi, welcome back. This is Sam from Motive Partners, and I am joined today by the lovely Karen Kerrigan from Cedars. Welcome, Karen. Good morning. Hello. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So, Karen, you and I met first a few years back. Today, as of January, you are the Chief Operating Officer at Cedars. Congratulations. Thank you. But you've had a number of different roles, I think three, four maybe. Most recently, the Chief Legal Officer, which was where your background came from. You were a solicitor, I think, with Simmons & Simmons. I remember Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your career and how you got to where you are today? Sure. Well, I suppose, you know, university, I didn't study law and I didn't study finance, actually. I I studied English, which seems a good starting point, something I enjoyed. I think so, English law. (laughs) And went on to law because it seemed like a proper career. You know, it was something that was well respected, gave you a lot of exposure. And and there were a lot of jobs in law, particularly at that time, which was a pre-financial crisis. I knew I didn't want to do it long term, but I found it very interesting. I qualified into financial services, mainly contentious work, so litigation. And a lot of the work that I was doing was sort of post-financial crisis mess clear up. So, you know, post-Lehman litigation, then sort of institutional disputes like LIBOR-related stuff, retail disputes, PPI-related stuff. So quite a kind of depressing environment, but mm-hmm. but fascinating in, it, in its own right. So I think, you know, there's the background in, in financial services and hoping to see a new way of financial services being done. And I'd always always had a, an interest in entrepreneurship. And my mother was an entrepreneur. I'd seen very much the ups and downs live of that kind of life. And a few years into practicing law, I thought, actually, you know, I'd love to do something like that. And that was 2013. And I came across Cedars, which had just launched as, you know, the first regulated equity crowdfunding platform. And I thought, actually, that's that's pretty cool. And I initially actually thought of it as something to fund my own business. Because mm-hmm. uh, despite earning lots of money in the city, I never saved a penny and thought, well, if I need some funds to start my own my own thing and maybe equity crowdfunding is a good way to go and the job came up as legal and financial director at the time and that was six years ago and the rest is history really I haven't moved on but I've definitely found the kind of desire for entrepreneurship and the exposure to financial services done a new way a really really exciting journey to be a part of awesome it's really interesting hearing you tick all the different boxes from well obviously something different at university but I did sociology so I can't comment to law blended with financial services a passion for entrepreneurship and I won't ask it yet but at some point I'd love to know the sorts of services and support that you provide the entrepreneurs that come through your platform because obviously legal fees and you know, not knowing what the unknowns out there are is, is a serious part of entrepreneurship and can trip anyone up. Mm. So we'll come back to that in a sec. But can we talk about the evolution of Cedars? So you joined the business when it was beginning-ish. Where did the idea come from and what's the genesis? What's the journey been? Well, well Cedars, I mean, actually is, is 10 years old now. It was founded as a business school project at Saeed Business School in Oxford uh, between our two founders, uh, Jeff Lian and Carlos Silva. And they saw what Zopa was doing. You know, Zopa le- mm. launched as the first peer-to-peer lender, I think it was 2004, 2005. Other inspirations were Kiva that was doing something slightly different. 
on the not-for-profit side. And they thought, could we do something with, with equity? So the idea, 2009, took quite a long time for it to get regulated and it first regulated business. The infrastructure in our regulatory system is there, but it definitely had to be navigated and it, it took three years to get that through. So that was 2012 that we actually launched. I joined a year after and, and you're right, it was a very different business. I think we'd funded about 20 deals at that time. We've now funded over 850. And at that point, we really were doing seed stage businesses. It was all businesses and eligible for the seed enterprise investment scheme. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the SEIS scheme provides very, very favorable tax reliefs, as, as you'll know. But you can only raise up to £150,000. So it really was those those early stage businesses. Now, over the last few years, what we've seen is, I guess, three different areas of, of evolution. The first is of the type of investors that use the platform. It was you know, very much designed at that point for the mass affluent, the time poor, the people that you know wanted to invest between £1,000 and £10,000, but also the community around the entrepreneurs. So people being able to invest as little as £10 actually in, into these businesses. And what we've seen over the last few years is a lot more interest from institutions, whether that's co-investment, whether that's anchoring investment, maybe that's even off-platform investment. But around 60% of our businesses now do have that institutional investor alongside a crowd round. The second thing is the entrepreneurs themselves. So as I said, it used to be very much seed stage businesses. But what we're now seeing is businesses all the way up to IPO. We've even had listed businesses raising money through Cedars as part of a, a roadshow that they're doing off-platform. And, you know, Revolut being in the same building as you, you know, that was a big round for us. Um, we did that a couple of years ago. Uh, they raised three million from, I think, I think it was over 4,000 investors from 55 different countries, which I guess leads me on to the third development, which is international. You know, we were very much UK based at the beginning, always had a development office in Portugal, in part because one of our co-founders was was Portuguese. But now we have, you know, small offices, representative offices in the Netherlands and Germany as well. And over the next year or so, we really intend to push that European business out. But, you know, last year took massive strides in in Europe. Actually, last year alone, we raised for businesses from 12 different jurisdictions and had investors from 60 different jurisdictions. That's pretty cool. That's really cool. Yeah, really cool. It's interesting hearing you talk about firms that want to kind of build their tribe and their community, particularly before the IPO. And there's an irony, I think, in the public markets, because despite creating liquidity and people being able to buy into something, people, the everyday person, actually tends to become disenfranchised with it because it feels complicated Mm. and big and scary and you're owning stock. So it's interesting to hear you talk about Cedars bridging the gap between the private and the public markets. Have you done any work so far with, with stock exchanges? and other cap markets businesses? Do you know what we have? And, and we, we get this question a lot. And we are, you know, we've got good friends at the, the LSE and at the main market and AIM and, and, and the smaller markets as well. And there's a lot of common interests. But, you know, at the moment, that's not a space that we're looking to go into. It's very much a transition. You know, you've got mm-hmm. businesses that start raising money in the private sphere. And then at some point, they'll go on to the, the public sphere. But in a world where we're seeing businesses stay private for a lot longer, we're not looking to necessarily go into Mm. the public market space. We're looking to provide an equivalent service for private companies. So this is actually a nice segue, I think, into a question around the secondaries market. Mm. We were doing our research and Emma and I were 
looking through the the questions that we drafted for this, and I didn't realize that you had a, a secondary market for your platform. That to me is the holy grail of private investments. It, there's nothing more frustrating than investing in something, particularly in an EIS, SEIS investment that never has any liquidity. Mm. And okay, fortunately you have nice tax breaks, but that's that's not exactly a win. So yeah, could you tell us a little bit about that innovation and why and how you created it for the consumer? Well, the why is a very good question because, you know, if you were going back through the annals of Jeff Lynn, our chairman and co-founder, you'd probably find some records from him from, you know, 2012 saying, we would not do a secondary market. It's too difficult. It's too complicated. Um, and in any case, this is a long-term investment. People going into invest in early stage and growth-focused businesses, private businesses should be thinking about this in terms of long term. And nothing that we've done in relation to the secondary market should take that away. And we message that very clearly in terms of, you know, you should still go into this thinking that this is a a, a long term liquid asset class. All that said, if you have the facility to provide something Mm. like that, and the demand is there, then you can provide it in a responsible way. And, And what we were seeing was that demand. So for all of our portfolio companies, every business that raises on the platform, we have a post-investment community. And this is really done through a platform community access point where investors can uh, interact with each other and interact with the businesses. And what we were seeing is investors wanting to buy and sell shares on those post-investment pages, which is not a great experience. It's it's pretty clunky. It's hard to control. And the companies find that quite quite stressful. So what we did was build a product around that demand. And, and actually what you're seeing in what we, we call our secondary market is no more sophisticated really than a bulletin board. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still very much in its beta phase. We are very conscious of the, the risks around it, both in terms of expectations of liquidity, but also on the entrepreneur side. You know, if they're in a fundraising cycle and there are people trading yeah. uh, trading shares at a particular price, that can be disruptive. But what we've been really, really surprised about is even with this beta product and restrictions around the market in terms of how much you can sell and so on, there's a huge amount of appetite, not just for investors. And we've had in the last two years since it has been live, we've had 9,000 investor exits through the secondary market. Last month was our biggest month yet. So it's not that people are losing interest or feel that they've, they've traded enough. But the even bigger surprise has actually been on the entrepreneur side of things. And I think... Another driver for us in thinking that this could be a useful product was that, you know, it's no secret that because businesses are staying private for longer, as as we've spoken about, there's pressure coming from those early angels, the people that have invested in early stage who, who want to get some money out. And what entrepreneurs are finding is that this releases the pressure from them. Yeah. And so whereas we thought that on launching the market, we'd actually be have, have to be most careful with entrepreneur expectations, we're now seeing businesses that have not raised on Cedars come to us saying, how can we access that? That's really cool. I thought for a, a scary moment, you were about to say the entrepreneurs are trying to cash out in the secondary market. <laughs> no, that's, a, that's definitely something that we're, that we're careful about. <laughs> Let's talk about the, the evolution of that beta phase then. So as you get more feedback and more and more people start using the secondary market to release some liquidity, 
how are you redefining those parameters? Are you having focus groups? Are you just taking feedback on board and redefining parameters? I'm sure that some entrepreneurs have different experiences and expectations for others. You can't please everyone all the time. How are you doing that? Yeah, well, let me give you a bit of a sense of the kind of controls and restrictions we've we've got in place, and then I'll move on to, to answer your question. So one thing that we have done is that the market is only open for one week a month. It launches on, on the first Tuesday of every month, call it Trading Tuesday, and that makes sure that you don't have this sort of drip feeding aspect to it and actually creates some demand at a, at a certain point in time. Another restriction is that you can only sell a certain number of, of share lots at, at one point. Another is that you can only sell at the moment up to uh, £1,000 worth of shares. And the final one is, or the final main one is in relation to the price at which the share is being traded. And at the moment, we mark every single one of our portfolio companies at a marked market price and based on primarily the value of its last fundraising round. And presently, you can only trade at that price. And mm. that sort of you know, responds to the concern that I mentioned before about the price fluctuations. But one of the biggest bit, bits of feedback, unsurprisingly for, from investors, is we want to trade more than £1,000 and we want to be able to trade at a price that we want. So we want to be able to have that negotiating power. So we are hosting a lot of feedback sessions at the moment with our, our investors, with our entrepreneurs, with external third parties to look at how we can do that in a controlled way. That's really useful. Thanks. So we're talking a little bit about regulation here. And as pioneers in the space, you guys must have worked hand in hand with the FCA and with various other bodies to help define the peer-to-peer and, uh, and crowdfunding standards for the industry. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? And then maybe you can segue that into the nominee structure. Because when I first heard about Cedars, from you, actually, that was one of the things that I thought was, was the coolest part of the structure. Yeah. So the regulatory environment is something that I've spent a considerable portion of my last uh, my last six years doing, and it, it's been a great journey. You know, the where we are now is ultimately the standards that Cedar set out in terms of investor verification, making sure that an investor understood the risk before they can invest it and they're certified in the right way, and also on the due diligence on the businesses, making sure that they are presented mm-hmm. in a fair, clear, and not misleading way. That's been our approach from day one. Um, having a regulated environment for our product was always very important to us. For us, it was a complete no-brainer. This is an investment service. This isn't a consumer product. So ultimately, despite the fact that there's been a lot of noise about this in the news over the last few years, our approach hasn't changed at all. And we're really pleased with how the rules have come out. That's separate to the nominee structure, which is not required by regulation and is something that we have put in place for all our deals as a way to maximise the potential success of this asset class and people investing in it. And, you know, without getting too loyally and and technical, because I always see people's eyes slightly gloss over, what this does is enable the small investors to have the same protections as the larger investors. Because if you're a £10 investor or a £100 investor or a 1000 or even a £10,000 investor, you're not going to have the leverage to have the kind of contractual protections that a professional investor would have unless you're aggregated into one big investment. And that is effectively what the nominee structure is. It's bringing all those people under one investment and having a single shareholder model, uh, which is obviously better for the company as well, because you only have one investor on your your cap table rather than multiple makes follow on rounds a lot easier. So that's the the boring legal bit. And with that, you get, you know, the investor protection such as preemption, 
also ability to, to buy shares when the business does its next fundraising round. You get tag-along rights, which means that if the majority get offered a buyout, you can benefit from that buyout on the same terms. Information rights, so knowing about the business, which is not a given in private companies, and a consents for a range of different things, uh, such as you know business taking on debt, uh, director salaries, and so on. And CEDARS will act on your behalf in relation to all of that. The cool thing about having all that legal infrastructure in place is the products that we can develop on top of it. The secondary market being the super key one. Mm. So in most private businesses, almost all private businesses, if you wanted to transfer shares, you'd have to go and ask the company. Yeah. <laughs> Just it, That's why there aren't private markets. Mm. Um, but you can do it with under the nominee structure, under the uh, contractual provisions that, that we've put in place. Another obviously really, really exciting thing for us is the ability to get information on a regular basis from our portfolio companies, which enables us to look at success. So it enables to look across our portfolio and see how businesses have performed. And, and we've produced, I think it's three annual reports now, looking at the performance of our portfolio, yeah. which is good, you know, portfolio wide, and that's all business even those that have failed uh, from up to 2018 uh, was 12% IRR. If you include tax adjusted, it takes you up to 26%. Like That's no surprising. One, it, it's it's yeah. good, isn't it? And, wow. and and no one in that space has this data. And obviously, you know, same, you know, when we're speaking about the returns, uh, same risk supply in terms of this is a diversified portfolio. But having that data and being able to then talk about the benefits of diversification in this asset class is really, really powerful. Are you able to invest in a product that blends all of them together? Across the Cedars yeah. portfolio? Very good question, Sam. I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> I've read the notes. <laughs> almost, almost like you've done your research. Well, you know, if we'd have done that five years ago, no one would be interested. I'd be like, what? Investing across businesses that yeah. I haven't picked and I don't have control over, not interested. But since we've had these reports which show the benefits of diversification, we have introduced two products. The first is an auto-invest feature, which is instead of you going onto the platform and picking individual deals, you can set your parameters. So I want to invest in all EIS businesses, or I want to invest in all EIS fintech businesses, or all EIS fintech businesses with 200 investors. And you can set those trigger points. So that's designed for someone that wants easy diversification, but still wants to interact with the platform. The second product is our EIS 100 fund, mm -hmm. and that has taken a segment of data from our portfolio reports and looked at what has performed well across the board and what can give that element of diversification. And the aim of the EIS 100 fund is you really only have one touch point, which is I want to invest in that. And the EIS 100 fund will then make your investments in 100 businesses that qualify for that criteria over the course of a year. Very, very clever. Most of the guests on this podcast read our newsletter every week, so we thought you'd enjoy it too. It's called Brain Food. It comes out every Sunday morning and it's packed with all the things you need to know about financial services and technology. You can subscribe at motivepartners.com. I've got a few questions now that you may not expect, but the, the first one is, what are the criteria and how often do you say no to firms that want to raise money on your platform? <laughs> 
We have a very large volume of businesses that come to us. Only between 3 and 5% get to raise money on the platform. So the selection criteria is a lot. You know, I mean, we go through these businesses and make sure that they're obviously not illegal or yeah. immoral or sanctioned, I think is your, your very baseline. But then it's looking at the business's performance historically, the traction that they've got presently, their ambitions going forward, the type of business they are. So, you know, whilst we have a lot of B2B businesses as mm. well as B2C businesses, if you're looking at something very, very technical, deep tech, even something that's probably on the less consumer side of, of medical, for example, that's probably not going to be successful crowdfunding. And is that purely because people just don't understand the business? Yeah. Yeah. I think part of it is is people don't understand the business. And part of it is because perhaps particularly innovations coming out of labs, you don't have that community aspect about it. And if I look at businesses that become successful or have been successful in crowdfunding, it's not that they were B2C or that they were B2B, it's that community. So, you know, Oppo ice cream is one of our faves within the office. We have a, a fridge with Oppo ice cream is sort of fewer calories than an apple in a pot of ice cream developed by a couple of brothers who started making healthy ice cream when they were on a kite surfing buggy trip in Brazil. Like, very cool story. And they have this amazing community around them. And what they were successful at in the crowdfunding process themselves, they were also successful post-crowdfunding. They would actually post on their post-investment page to their investors, hey, I see Waitrose isn't sort of stocking our stock correctly and the label's not at the front, so can you all go around and change them? And it, it was great. And that's an obvious B2C example. But another example on, on the B2B side is a company called Free Agent, and they are an accounting software business. Owned by RBS now. Owned by RBS. Yeah, they raised on Cedars a few years ago. I think they raised 700000 And I, I really just thought it was the most boring business ever. <laughs> but they had a great community, and everyone thought the product was great. But yeah, they went on to raise cash on Cedars, largely from their community, rather than, than our platform investors, actually. Then went to list on AIM, and then were bought by RBS. Very cool story. I think what I've just heard you say is, if you want to be accepted onto Cedars, you need to give the staff a cool product um, <laughs> and lots of freebies. Do you get lots of freebies in the office? Do you oh, get a ton of ice cream we, in there? We, we do. We've just launched our first accelerator for a certain type of business, and it is no surprise that the guys in the office have chosen food and beverage. So we are having, I think it's sort of 10 F&B businesses coming on to do the Cedars Accelerator, who coincidentally, every time they come in for a session, bring us lots of free samples, which uh, doesn't quite hit our bribery policy within the office. I was going to ask a question on staff kind of benefits and stuff and wondering if you guys have, obviously in the war for talent, you've got to think out of the box on this stuff and free lunches and you know, bike to work schemes just don't work. Have you thought about anything in the investment sphere that you can offer your staff that, that gives them privileged access or anything like that? We've got to be quite careful about things like that because particularly as we move into the more sophisticated space and we're working with, you know, grown up institutions, making sure that we're continually looking at conflicts of interest, both internally, externally, co-investors, you know, within our nominee activities is, is really important to us. But it's also really important that people at Cedars use our product because if you're not yeah. using our product, you can't talk to it. So we actually give everybody in the business investment funds, so investment credits to put towards uh, Cedars investments. And so that's sort of one of the perks that we offer our staff, which helps them understand the product and, and get really motivated with the businesses that they back. That's really cool. Yeah, that's exactly what I was, I guess, asking about. <laughs> 
That's something that I was just thinking about when you were talking about primarily the nominee structure and some of the really innovative foundational concepts within the business. What did Jeff and Carlos do before they started the business? Well, Jeff was a, and I think will always be at heart, a capital markets lawyer. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and and Carlos was a technologist. So I think he would he would have described himself as certainly in part an ethical hacker at the time, yeah. which has, has various different connotations. But I, I bet think... as a legal person, that doesn't make you feel very comfortable. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think people are using ethical hackers a lot to their benefit now. But but um, certainly at that time, I mean, it was a real meeting of minds of you know the legal side and the technology side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense now, I guess. Although if you'd said to me that Jeff was a cat markets lawyer, that wouldn't have made me think entrepreneur. But. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Let's talk about some of the stuff you do in your spare time. You and I have worked on a couple of other initiatives in the past. I know you pick now, particularly as a mother, you know, how you spend your time very, very carefully and you only give the best opportunities, uh, the spare time that you have. Like this one. Like this one. Exactly like this one. Um, what are some of the initiatives that you're working on today? Some of the associations that you think deserve your time and, and get your backing? So I've spent, you know, as we alluded to on the regulatory side, I've spent a a lot of the last five or six years doing regulatory lobbying. I was a director, recently stepped down uh, this summer as director of the UK Crowdfunding Association. And that's been an awesome experience, but it has consumed a lot of mental and practical energy and time. And I feel really good about where we've got to on the interactions with the FCA, Treasury, HMRC, European Commission. Actually, the Europe stuff carries on, but certainly in the UK, I feel we're in a good place domestically. I also invested quite a lot of time in uh, something called the uh, Disruptive GC Network, which when I was Chief Legal Officer, I found an incredible source of support, ideas, recommendations, you know, therapy, I guess, from uh, general counsels from all sorts of tech businesses across the city, you know, from a Revolut to a Zopa to a Made.com to a City Mapper. And that's been great. But I've recently uh, stepped away from both of those. And I'm kind of looking for the next thing for both Cedars and for me personally. You know, you mentioned at the beginning that I've moved to a, formally to a COO position at the beginning of this year. And the COO position is more challenging. Everybody has a different version of what COO means in their business. Mm-hmm. But we had a, a really great roundtable earlier in the year working with Innovate Finance, actually. And we had about 12 COOs of fintech businesses around the table talking about shared experiences and, and challenges. And at present, I'm looking at how to take that forward. Again, more challenging because, you know, unlike lawyers, you don't have serious commonalities or as serious commonalities. But when everyone in the city is talking about how to scale a tech business, Mm. specifically how to scale a fintech business, I think that's where I'm looking at kind of focusing my energies over the next year or so. Yeah, I think it'll actually be the differences of groups and convening bodies like that 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 make them powerful. And there's an initiative going on that's that's backed by a very well-known tech entrepreneur in in the Valley around the Chief of Staff Association, Mm. which I think, again, is, is another very powerful powerful network of people who are the gatekeepers to some of the biggest decision makers on the planet. I can totally see the merit of doing the COO version of that. Yeah. We've got a lot of founders and entrepreneurs who listen to this to get inspiration from leaders like you and to listen about entrepreneurial businesses. But the applicability of Cedars to their business is, is even richer because of the fundraising capability. How can they kickstart the process with Cedars? And you know, to the question that I kind of asked earlier at the start, how do you then support them through that process? So I mentioned that 
we take businesses from all different sectors. Our last portfolio update showed that we had a 17 different sectors, or we categorise our, our businesses as 17 different sectors. You know, as I said, B2B, B2C, digital, non-digital, mixed, although ultimately I think most businesses have some element of being digital these days. So if you are a business who has a, a decent growth story, you're interested mm. in, in delivering growth um, to yourselves and, and to your stakeholders, come and have a chat with us. It's a a really viable way to raise finance, to engage your community and to deliver some real brand value as well. And I think that's where crowdfunding has really made a name for itself, is that ability not just to deliver funds in a short period of time, as we were speaking about before the podcast, you know, relatively short if you look at sometimes how long uh, institutional investment can take, but also building brand in the process. Mm-hmm. And we've got a, an in-house campaign marketing support team working on how to do your digital ads, tube ads, um, PR services, all the way through your crowdfunding raise. But then, you know, as I said, unlike a lot of other platforms, we don't disappear at the end. We are there as your nominee until the point that you exit. So we have a vested interest in making sure that you succeed. And that can be, you know, either on the ground help. We have a lot for what we call our our Cedars Alumni Club in terms of partnerships, events, networking. We have an anchor investment service now. um, So matching you with institutions, family offices that have shown an interest to get get into this space for your next investment round, but also on the products. So I've mentioned the EIS uh, 100 and the portfolio and the auto invest and so on the secondary market obviously but we're also looking at developing a suite of products for entrepreneurs and and who knows what shape that could take is it cap table management is it uh, post investment services legal tax and and so on because you know our value is is in our portfolio um, when they succeed uh, we succeed so it's a full life cycle approach I love that and when you say come have a chat what does that what does that mean how do they come have a chat with you <laughs> yeah well there's um, first Should I give your whatsapp is, um, details <laughs> First point of call is the website. Uh, There's an application online. As I said, you know, we don't take anywhere near all the businesses that come to us. It will be very easy for you to diagnose whether the type of business you have is appropriate for for raising on seeders, but also at the right stage. Our team will get back to you in terms of, you know, from that basic information that you've provided. And if you are eligible, help you to build that campaign and help you think about your marketing campaign. Then the decision that's made based on that, do you have an investment committee kind of structure? In terms of due diligence, um, you know, once the business is accepted as as eligible to raise, it's then about building actually what will investors see. It is a, you know, it's, it's almost like a mini pitch document. Your uh, idea, your competitors, your achievements, your ambitions, your team. Most entrepreneurs choose to use a video because obviously when you've got an online investment product, actually seeing the whites of entrepreneurs' eyes and and how they interact is important. And what our investment team will do is go through that pitch, through that campaign, and look at every single statement you've made, making sure that it can be signed off by our FCA rules as fair, clear, and not misleading, and that anything factual that you've put in there is, is substantiated. Once that process is complete, you then have the opportunity to raise. You have up to 60 days to raise the full amount that you're seeking. And once the, or assuming that the campaign is successful, we have about a 70% success rate at the moment of businesses that go live on the platform to raise, you'll then go through a final stage due diligence process. Mm -hmm. So that's when our team will look at things like, is the IP owned by the right place? What's the corporate structure look like? What resolutions do we need to take the, the, the company to go through? And what warranties are we looking for to make sure that we 
and us as nominee on behalf of investors have comfort that this is what it says in the tin. There isn't litigation pending, so on and so forth. It's a good legal answer. Thank you. <laughs> I can't help myself. I'm sorry. I try. <laughs> right, we're going to soften it up and take it away from the legal side, but to an equally important side. In fact, on my side of things, I think much more important. And I can say firsthand that you, you have been an inspiration to many women and men in the industry. A couple of years ago, you wrote a piece, Entrepreneur Like a Girl, and... At that time, male-presented pitches were 40% more likely to receive funding than, than female-led pitches. Can you talk a little bit about how you've seen that shift? And I know we haven't shifted enough. Innovate Finance's recent piece actually was pretty disappointing. Good piece by Innovate Finance, but the, the stats were disappointing. Mm. How have you seen it shift and how much further do we need to go? And what can we do to get ourselves there? So I think just quickly clarifying a point that you made on the 40% more likely to fund or receive investment mm. by men, that's not seen that's offline and that's sadly still very very common you know I did a few things on International Women's Day this year and this was a topic of of much of the conversation Mm. and still pitching live to venture capitalists other types of institutional investors men are far more likely to succeed and far less likely to be tarnished with what we're seeing with as quite a lot of sexist terms like the mumpreneur lipstick entrepreneur type phrases which women really still do suffer with. Now the interesting thing about crowdfunding and again I can't credit this data to us but one of the crowdfunding platforms in the US took some data or sourced some data which showed that female entrepreneurs were much more likely to succeed in crowdfunding than the male entrepreneurs. Now they couldn't really diagnose what that what that was. Perhaps literally that bias is taken away you're online, people can't kind of, you know, visually see male versus female, can't hear the, and other than in the video, of course, those voices. Or maybe it's something to do with women and community and uh, being able to use language, perhaps more inclusive language to encourage that community around, around crowdfunding. And I, I don't, I don't know the answer, but it's pretty cool. So I think for us at Cedars and how we contribute to that, I mean, there are, there are a few aspects. First is sort of what we do on a, on a corporate level for our business and making sure that we are promoting females within Cedars as an entrepreneurial venture. We've signed up to the uh, Treasury Women in in Finance Charter and we're looking at initiatives within our team. But then there's the outbound stuff as well. And we have recently launched a female founders office hours initiative where female founders come into Cedars, get the opportunity. And actually, Sam goes back to the question I think you wish I answered, which was what do we practically do for our entrepreneurs? And these female entrepreneurs have the opportunity to speak to people in the not only fundraising team but the HR team and the finance team and the legal team to ask questions about businesses and so on. So yeah, I mean I think they're they're really big initiatives that we're we're keen to take forward. We have looked at other things. So for example, do we hide the gender of our entrepreneurs when they're raising on the platform? And we haven't quite got comfortable with that being a good decision in the sense you've you've got to balance, as I said, the investor's desire to know the person they're investing in with mm. gender biases that might ensue. But it's something that we're continually revisiting. It's such an interesting topic. The Gates Foundation and specifically Melinda Gates released a, a short viral video recently that talked about the US having to spend the next 208 years to get to a level playing field. And it's when you hear statistics like that, that that you just, you can't help but be so disappointed in the efforts that are happening today. And I think the UK is probably a little bit better than that. And hearing how crowdfunding is helping level the playing field is important, but it's got to be a concerted effort amongst the entire community, not just segments of people and different groups of people. 
Let's switch to some lighter questions before we close out. I mentioned earlier, you're one of the busiest people I know, even more so in the COO role now. You do pick and choose now, I think, you know, what, what you want to spend your time doing. But how do you structure your days? How do you pack in as much as possible and still leave time for the important things, time to yourself, time for family? I wish I had a you know, brainwave of an answer to, to this one, but it's just the obvious things, I'm afraid. You know, I get up early. I try and structure. Th- I've always been an early riser, but I, I you know, try and structure in some, some exercise. I try and make sure, you know, Headspace do a walking meditation now so you can actually combine walking with meditation which is great. Unless you're looking zoned out on your commute. I, I know what's going <laughs> yeah, on. exactly. But I also have a great team. I really have some fantastic people within my team who can, you know, take some of the key initiatives that we're doing and, and I don't have to be in every meeting and, and make every decision. And I think developing that trust within your organisation is, is, is crucial if each of you is going to succeed individually, but also as a team without burnout in what is a pretty high-paced environment. I hear you. Throughout your career, I'm sure you've had lots of different role models. And probably I, I can imagine when you went through your training contract uh, as a lawyer, it was particularly necessary. But who have been some of your mentors and role models through your career? Oh, do you know what? I mean, saying about when I went through my training as a lawyer, I think one of the reasons I felt I had to leave law is because I couldn't find a role model, actually. It was, I know that's, that's a lot of things, but it, it was it's, it was hard. I, I just couldn't see myself as... This is the worst advertisement for people doing law. <laughs> it's a great career. I'm so glad I did it. I genuinely, it's, it's fantastic. I'm still a complete legal geek at heart. But I just couldn't see myself being a partner. Um, I mean, without without sounding really trite, I think my mum was a huge inspiration. You know, I mentioned her, her earlier. She built a business out of completely nothing. Not having gone to university, I feel that I've got a bit of an easy ride of it, really, having being given the opportunities that, that I have been. But I was thinking about this question before I came in. And um, actually, I think currently my biggest role models are, you know, the mothers that have come back to work in far more challenging circumstances than I've encountered. And uh, yeah, I mean, Jessica Ennis Hill, <laughs> Serena Williams. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're pretty inspirational women. Yeah, that's an awesome answer. And actually, I, I couldn't agree more with you. As, as you know, my wife is pregnant and she's a doctor. I mean, how, how you wow. combine yeah. when you're on the front line of society that kind of role with, yeah, what I, I feel like an imposter. It's that's, uh, yeah, yeah. men got Do- a very easy job. Doctors are amazing. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for coming in. It's been great to see you again. Great to learn more about the Cedars story. Yeah, thank you. And we're going to look forward to having you on this again soon with more updates. Great. Thank you so much for having me. When you're me. the CEO and chairman. Of- <laughs> <laughs> well, be careful. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motor partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry 
industry, the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.